Hello and welcome to another episode of the State of the Nova Nation. We hope you all had a great long weekend because we're back. I'm Eugene Rappé. He's Chris Danziel. Chris took care of business over the weekend, got that dub at the Garden on Saturday night. It wasn't pretty. It wasn't the blowout we predicted. But hey, around lunchtime yesterday, got to look at the new AP polls. And who was on top? Villanova with 63 of 65 first place votes. We need to find those two people that didn't give them the number one spot because they need to reevaluate themselves. Yeah, let's get the witch hunt going. Two teams that we're pretty familiar with. Virginia, because of the past two years, they got one. And Purdue, who we should have seen in Atlantis, but they decided to choke away their chance there. And now they've worked their way all the way back up to the top. That was pretty impressive. I bet you it was that Graham Couch guy. I bet you he, he, <sighs> he had a part of He's, that. He, that is the take that keeps on giving. Every time Michigan State loses, it's going to be great. And the fact, did you see that they almost lost to Rutgers? Took them overtime. Yeah, you, you need overtime to beat Rutgers? Okay, have fun with that. Yeah, the guy's a complete clown. He doesn't know what he's talking about, but numbers never lie. We're back on the top spot, number one, week 16 for the last three seasons. It's a pretty good run so far, and hopefully we get to keep that moving, keep that going. We got a lot to talk about the show. Let's talk about this Saturday first. Mm -hmm. It was not the blowout we predicted, or at least I predicted. I was very confident in saying that, and I'm going to tell you right now, Chris, if that game was being played tomorrow or that game was being played later this week, I would still make the same prediction that we would blow out the St. John's Red Storm because they're just not that great offensively. But that defense, not to be messed around with. If they could figure out how to score baskets without Marcus Levet, seeing that he's gone for the season and they only have one guy, if they can just start putting together that offense, putting together how to score the ball, they're going to be a very dangerous team. But for them... If they want a Big East win, they're going to have to look elsewhere because Villanova just handed them their sixth straight conference loss, and we got that win in front of a packed Madison Square Garden, top to bottom deck. I was a little surprised about that. Literally, lower bowl, all the way up to the bridge level, all the way up top, it was packed. I was a little shocked that it was as packed as it as it was. I, I think it's just because of the, the big Villanova contingent around this area. I saw a lot of kids that we uh, from my grade that were, were there. So it, it was a nice timed game. What was it, 7, 8 o'clock the game's played at Saturday? you got nothing else to do if you're living in the city. A perfect opportunity to go see the Cats. St. John's played a phenomenal defensive game, and it was mainly because of the – it was – I don't even know what it was. that They just were able to lock down pretty much everyone. It caused Villanova to have 17 total turnovers with Bridges and Phil Booth leading the way with five and four respectively. You don't really see that. And I think it even led the uncharacteristic game from Bridges on the offensive end, even though he did put up a double-double with 15 points and 11 boards. The five turnovers even caused Jay to call him out in the press conference and say he just didn't have a great game. That was pretty weird. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure what the deal was there, whether they thought they were sleepwalking, they just started thinking they could take this game off, kind of like how we predicted. We're like, oh, they'll just walk in, no big deal, and blow them out. Maybe they had that same mentality. But at the same time, these are the type of games you just want to put away with without any pressure, but luckily Dante was able to save the day on the offensive end. Yeah, it was such a bizarre game. It was one of those where you kept thinking like, oh, you know, right now they're they're starting slow, but it's only a matter of time before the three-star drop in, the best start popping, and then we start just taking over the game, just taking complete command and just bulldozing our way to another victory. But then five-minute back and forth, little dry spell, and like, all right, all right, okay. And then 10 minutes, he starts to get a little worried because St. John's is still right into it. Everyone's kind of struggling. Threes aren't falling. Turning the ball over a lot. 17 times for the whole game. Very uncharacteristic, but that's also St. John's MO, so you can't really get too upset. But then 
towards the end of the first half. Dante DiVincenzo strings together eight points in just a matter of a minute and a half. And then before you know it, those eight points became 25. And he was the driving force to this win. There's something about St. John's. There's something about him playing at the Garden because he just has his way against the Red Storm. Lit them up for 25 points and a career-high six three-pointers in one game. He was just an animal, a force against the Red Storm. A lot of his teammates just seem to have a hard time against the defensive press and such high pressure that the St. John's Red Storm do to opponents. Whether it was clogging passing lanes, getting in a face with double teams, forcing turnovers. Dante just seemed really unscathed. And he's, according to Jay, the perfect guy for taking down the Red Storm. He had this to say. They make you play one on one, you know. There's, he's really good at that too, you know. Um, and, and that's what they, you know, they they get up, they pressure you, and they for, they make it tough to run offense. And when you run offense, sometimes you're you're tentative. That's how we turn the ball over. You need somebody to just go make a play. And Dante's really good at that. Chris, what did you think about Dante DiVincenzo? His game on Saturday, another big performance, a big career performance against the Red Storm, matching his career high that he had last season. In the Big East tournament, which was also actually against St. John's, 25 points and just lighting it up against the Red Storm and really being that spark. Because if we didn't have him, if we didn't have him cooking, this could have been a problem. Yeah, we got to give credit where credit's due. We've been pretty hard on Dante these past couple weeks, but he's absolutely he's he turned the corner here, obviously. And we we even predicted uh, last episode that he was going to have this type of game. It just it's just something about St. John's that he's just able to get up for. And just absolutely light him up. I'm not exactly sure what it is, but we'll 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 take it. We'll absolutely take it. He played exactly how we expected him to. Like you said, the one-on-one type performances for Dante. He's able to get to the basket. He's able to just create his own shot. And that's apparent in the stat line. He shot a very nice six of nine from deep, seven eleven from the field. Good for twenty-five. I will say that the uh, Big East tournament last year, I felt like he had a better game. I don't know what it was. I think it was just maybe because the team had a better game, and I thought he had more than twenty-five points in that game. But you absolutely needed Dante in this. This would have been an absolute disaster if this team ended up losing this game. But you need those type of players, if it, whether it's your sixth or seventh guy, if they're able to create these type of performances for you and, and when the rest of the team is sleepwalking, then that's A-OK because this is a long season. you got to get through these type of games. Yes, they're kind of a bore because you're on the road against a, a pretty terrible St. Sean's team. But if you can have a Dante step up in a big moment like this and carry the rest of the team, and then you know what? That's that's perfectly okay with me, and that's what you need him for. Yeah, you could never bet against Dante DiVincenzo when Villanova's going up against St. John's. His eight points wing gave Villanova the lead late in the second half, and from there we just never gave it up. From there, he scored 17 of the team's 44 second half points. He was just so crucial, just burning shot after shot after shot. However, you know it looked like we were gonna pull away once we pushed it to double digits. Dante hits a big three. Or gets a big play going, it just seemed like okay, now this is when Villanova is going to take off. They're just going to kick it into hyperdrive, and they're just going to blow St. John's away. But that's not exactly what happened. The Red Storm just would not go away quietly, and it was all because of Shamori Ponds. Very impressive game, 37 points, 15 of 28 on the floor. He didn't hit a single three. We knew what he was all about. We knew that he was pretty much their only weapon offensively that can just consistently give them points, get them buckets, play hard. It was phenomenal last year. We knew what he was capable of doing. No Marcus Levet drops 37. If he didn't do that, this game could have been ugly for St. John's. If he just did what he usually puts up, like 18 or 19, we went by 20. However, he didn't do that. You got to give credit to him because he was just making so many tough shots fall. 
he was making shots that his teammates wouldn't have been capable of making. And to put up 37, defense is keying on you. Yeah. Great performance by him. He was good. And before you know it, 20 became 30, and 30 became 37. Yeah, he, he really stepped it up. And and we, we talked about last episode how he was an inefficient scorer, um, shooting under 40% from the field, terrible three-point shooter. And yeah, he did he, didn't, he went all of six from deep, but 15 to 28 from the field. And he even created some nice and ones. I, I believe he had a couple of shots that you, you wouldn't expect to go in and then on a foul, and then he was able to make them. He was just having that type of game. Contributing seven boards as a guard, too. Great all-around game for him. You, you can't really underestimate the power of this kid. He's a big-time player. And him and Lovett, they, I was saying at the beginning of the year that they were going to really cause St. John's to take that next step and just as a team and maybe even contend for a tournament spot. But obviously with the Lovett injury and the rest of the team, not filling out as nicely as they, they've obviously taken a step back and are now on six in the conference. So yes, Shamari Pons, great freaking game by him. He almost played the entire game. I think he played 39 or 40 minutes. He is St. John's right now. He is the red storm and he's going to need a lot more performances like this to keep St. John's competitive in the biggest for the rest of the year. Yeah. The thing with St. John's is they're not a great three point shooting team. They only made one of 12 and it wasn't even from Pons. Pons didn't even make the single three came from Brian Trimble jr. But even with all that, we knew that he was going to drive the way inside. We knew what was going to happen. He just still found a way to deliver every time. Kudos to him because he kept this game very competitive, especially towards the end. Things got a little too close for comfort. There was that controversial Bridges call. All I got to say about that is I was standing right – I was right next to, like, a media person, and they had the replays, like, like snap, like, instantly, just a few seconds after. They got access to them on their computer. So everyone was huddled around this one laptop watching the over or no what was considered an undercut by ponds or whoever that was instead of an over the back by bridges and that made st john's fans very unhappy very sad after watching the replay in real time i thought it was an over the back on bridges saw the replay really thought it was an over the back by bridges but let's be honest st john's fans that, that wasn't going to change anything i yeah <laughs> there, we were still down by four yeah you got the ball back or you would have had possession because we had just missed with about 46 seconds left, 47 seconds left, I still think Villanova would have won. Yeah, it would have made things more interesting, but got to tone down the hate for the refs. I feel like if you really want, if you really were that angry, you would be more angry at the 1-for-12 shooting, the fact that no other Red Storm player surpassing 7 points. <laughs> there were so many other things to be angry about. And not just that, to the New York Post guy. The yeah. guy... Uh, Zach Brazilier. Zach Brazilier, yeah. Yeah. It kind of looks like Jared from Subway. Um, Unnecessary. Totally unnecessary. What was that quote you, you shared it with me? You were the one who brought it to my attention. What did he say? I saw Chris Lane quote tweet him, and I was able to read the thread he was in with some other St. John's fan. And he said that Nova has been getting those types of calls for years. And I'm just like, are you kidding me? Do you not do you not watch the games at all? Like Nova doesn't get any yeah, we get our favorable calls, but we also get our non-favorable calls. It, it, it evens out. I mean, come on. One of the worst calls in, in Big East history was the, the Georgetown foul, yep. like 60 feet away from the basket. Like, so bad. That was one of the worst things ever. I, I got really, really angry as a child. And I, that was – and I, I'm sorry. I'm, lo- I'm losing my words here. I, I, that, that's just a clown statement. An absolute fool. <laughs> yeah, totally unnecessary. 
clearly don't watch every single Villanova game. Clearly mm-hmm. haven't watched a Villanova game pre-2013, yeah, 2014, really. when they started being good again. Because I remember a few times where they got hosed. The Georgetown one is the most egregious. But I think there was also one against Rutgers, if I'm not mistaken, where they called like a push out with like Oh, one yeah. seconds left. Yeah, it was. I think that and was the The game was the game was tied, and then they called a push out with literally point one second on the clock. Yeah, I think that was the and one on the three to like give Rutgers the lead or something. Something crazy. Yeah, like, Villanova Villanova's had their their home share of crappy calls. Good Villanova win. It's interesting because Jay after the game, people ask him like, "Oh, was it because you know it was St. John's? Do you think that your team was sleepwalking? Do you think that they just..." were feeling a little sluggish? Do you think they were distracted? And he said, no, he felt like that they were up, that they always feel hype for playing at the Garden. I mean, who wouldn't? <laughs> you get to play on the floor of some, first of all, an iconic arena, legendary arena. And then you get to play on an NBA floor. I feel like you always get hyped up for that. And he felt that they had a good week of practice, that the team's mind was right. And that it was just St. John's performed. And they executed. And they executed very well on defense, especially Really disoriented us. Do you think that moving forward, do you think that this is kind of like a blueprint for a press-heavy team? Like for March, for example, in the NCAA tournament, does that make a Texas or a West Virginia that much more scarier to go up against? Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes, 100%. I've always felt like this team has always had trouble getting the ball in play. And when you have a press-heavy team, obviously that becomes more of an issue. I feel like once once they're able to inbound the ball, I think they're able to mitigate it. But if you're able to cause some problems off the bat and force this team to make some passes that they don't want to and double team and break through these double teams, this would be an issue. So, yes, in that regards, a West Virginia or a Texas would scare me. And I know St. John's is much less talented than those two teams. I feel that if, if they get, like, they're practicing against St. John's, then, then maybe they'll be able to kind of break the press from that. But like I said, I, I think once they get the ball in play, I think they're, they're okay and I think they're fine. It's just getting the ball in, which has always, always been an issue for J-Ride teams, which would concern me the most. I will say one thing about St. John's that makes them kind of unique is how good their front line is. That front court is so good. You, you have a guy like Tariq Owens, who's one of the best shot blockers in the country. I think he's top five right now. He did not make it easy. Whenever we try to get the ball inside, like, okay, the threes weren't falling. Let's try to feed it inside. It was not an easy time for Amari Spellman or Eric Pascal. Shouts out to Eastman for also draining a couple threes. Getting that three-point stroke back, which is nice. But it just wasn't an easy time to just go inside. Like, the answer wasn't as simple as, okay, threes aren't falling, let's go in. Because then you just have these towering mountains just collapse right on you. Three go-ins, Justin Simon, Bashir Ahmed, Marvin Clark. Like any one of those, any combination of those four guys would just come in with a double or triple team inside, force you to throw it, pass it out, which resulted in a turnover sometimes. With Mikael Bridges having a few very head-scratching turnovers, like, where where was that supposed to go? But the man redeemed himself. St. John's fans were hating on Bridges for getting that call that a lot of people may have disagreed with. But he came back with a posterizer on Tariq Owens at the very end. The exclamation point, the finishing touches on this game, put the big man on a poster, and just really sealed the win for the Cats. There was just no doubt after that. It was just such a sick finish, and it just really made the St. John's fans more miserable than they actually were and a lot of let's go Nova chance in the Garden. It really felt like a Big East tournament game towards the last couple of minutes there with the whole crowd on its feet, getting super loud. It was a really exciting environment those last few minutes. Yeah, it really was. And I I wasn't expecting that type of environment at all. I thought this would be a blowout. Everyone goes home early and the Nova fans kind of stay around and just chant let's go Nova at the end. No big deal. But obviously St. John's fans were able to stay around for much longer than I, I would have expected. And they were able to get into it themselves. 
Yeah, that Bridges posterizer at the end, that was pretty nice. I, I don't know if you saw, but he kind of stared down Tariq Owens at the end there. I, I guess that was just pent-up frustration from, from the game and the, the fans hating on him. So I, I, that definitely he definitely chalked that one up. I think he, he really needed that to make himself feel better about his performance. I know he put up the double-double, like we said, and then Jed kind of bashed him in the, in the press conference, but he really needed that for his own sake. Yeah, it was a great finish, and it was also great to see Dante just go off once again, you know, whatever Villanova's playing St. John's, you can just put all your money on Dante. Put a nice little prop bet over under 20, take the over every time, and I bet he'll help you pay out. But yeah, great game for DiVincenzo. Okay game for the Cats. They got out of it, which is all that matters. Could have been better, could have been worse. But yeah, if Dante didn't have that game, we would have lost. But also you can say if we don't let Chamoy Pons put up 37, we would win comfortably too. So it goes out the way you want it. Just like Jay Wright said, it was a gritty game. It was just one of those ugly wins you just had to take. And you're going to look back at the film. You're going to learn from it. And you just move on. You tip your hat to St. John's. But for the Red Storm, let's be honest, there's no real moral victories here. And you're going to kind of be upset that you just let this one get away. But we move on. And next up, we got the Georgetown Hoyas. First time that the Cats will take on Georgetown this season. And the first time that Patrick Ewing, as the Hoyas head coach, will be taking on the team that he hates so much. You can just tell that that 1985 loss, he could have had NBA championships. He could have beaten Jordan. He has those two gold medals from the Olympics. He had a legendary career at Georgetown, but that one loss in 1985 still stings him to this very day. You see it show up in interviews. You saw it a little bit in the rec room for the Big East 30 for 30, but you can bet he doesn't care what the standings are. He doesn't care how his team is. He's going to be fired up, and he's going to want to get his men fired up to beat Villanova. He sure is, and this is the first big, real big home game for Georgetown this year, and it comes against the, their bitter rivals, so they'll definitely be up for it. Ewing's going to try and get his boys ready for this, obviously. If you don't think he's had this game circled for since the schedule came out, you'd be crazy. This is midweek game at home against a number one Villanova team. There's so many storylines to go along with that, basically from 80, 82 to 85 for him against Villanova. There's plenty to talk about here. Yeah, he doesn't care if Villanova's number one. He doesn't care if Villanova is number 351. And he doesn't care if somehow they got a bunch of NBA players to play for the Cats. He's going to be fired up. He's going to be angry. And he's going to believe that his team is going to go in there and kick the Wildcats' butt. That's got to be one very strong belief there because they're, they're in trouble. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. I would, I would sit here thinking he's crazy, but I guess that's the kind of mindset you want. You can't be scared. Yeah. I mean, if you're just like, oh, yeah, let's just roll over, guys. No big deal. Yeah, that, that's a great way to, to start off your first year. If it's a 20-point loss, 30-point loss, 40-point loss, he's going to have his team run till I don't know, until they join the track team because it's not going to be fun. <laughs> that man is a competitor. That man is fierce. I don't know about this non-con schedule, though. If you look at Georgetown's non-conference schedule, we heard so much about it. It wasn't that great, blah, blah, blah. Georgetown is only 1-5 and five against Ken Palm top 100 teams. The only top 100 team they beat was St. John's, and that was a three-point game. Another dogfight at the Garden. I have no fear about this game. I think it'll be very interesting. I think it'll be fun to watch. I think it'll be fun to see what Patrick Ewing thinks about this game once it's all said and done. But right now, I just don't see a reason Villanova would lose. It'll definitely be a hostile crowd, hostile environment. You're going to get the Hoyas' best effort, but I'm feeling pretty confident for a win tomorrow night. Yeah, I am as well. Going through their schedule, like you said, the non-con, you can say what you want about it. It was absolutely horrific. They had the Syracuse game sprinkled in there, but they took them to overtime. Butler, they took the double overtime. That was at that was at Georgetown. Then on the road, they gave Marquette a tough time. 
only lost by nine to them. Then they beat fellow bottom feeders, the Paul and St. John's, and they got throttled by Creighton and Seton Hall. Georgetown isn't as bad as I think people expect them to be, and I think it was mainly because of the non-con schedule that they got a bad rap. But at the same time, they are still not that good. Yes, you got Govan. Yes, you got Derrickson on the inside to basically eat all their points and get all their boards. And there are two fine players, but at the same time, it's, they just don't have enough talent elsewhere. They've been depleted by transfers. They've been depleted by terrible recruiting. Patrick Ewing had to come in and basically start from scratch almost and then basically re- reform the entire program due to JT3's incompetence. So, yeah, I, I just expect Villanova to go in there, take care of business. Maybe a St. John's S-type game, and maybe they, it's a little too close for comfort, but I, I still expect them to get a double-digit win. And- yeah, this Georgetown team, I'm sure a lot of people anticipated them to go, what, like 12-0 in non-con play, and then 0 for, <laughs> 0 for 18 in Big East play, and that's certainly right. not the no. We heard all the jokes about how bad this team was in non-con play, but I think it really did help them iron out a lot of the kinks. They certainly aren't looking like the worst team in the conference. So far, not even the second worst team. So they've improved. They've improved in that sense. I think they do play very well at home. You can see it with how they play Butler. They were supposed to beat Butler. They had a big double-digit lead to start conference play. And then all of a sudden, they blow it. Had to go to overtime. Couldn't sell it there. And then lost by two points in double OT. The Syracuse game, as you said, also went into overtime. So I think this team plays pretty well at home. You got to expect a very raucous very loud very spirited Verizon Center it's a rivalry game you never know what can happen in rivalry games it's going to be a good environment it's going to be fun it's going to be fun in the sense that it's the first Villanova Georgetown meeting of the year Patrick Ewing's at the helm but if there's one thing that would tick me off more than anything is if we were to lose to the Hoyas tomorrow night I just don't see it but if that were to happen I'd be so disappointed hopefully no letdowns if you lose to Georgetown on the road here, yeah, I'd, I'd be upset and that would be pretty disastrous, but I, at least you still have time to recoup. <laughs> but the, I, I just I just can't see a scenario in which Georgetown wins it. I, I can't. Yes, they do play at home, like you said, but is their home court advantage really that great in terms of the crowd and, and the student section? What was it? A couple of years ago, they had the, the sad kid. What was his name? I don't even remember. Oh, Sad, Sad Scott, Sad Scott. Sad, Sad Scott, yeah. I mean, that, that's basically been their student section for the past couple of years, ever since the Florida Gulf Coast lost. I, I don't think it'll be that bad of an environment. I think it'll be a little, it'll definitely be hostile, but I think they should go in there and then take care of business. This isn't Creighton, this isn't Providence, this isn't Butler, this isn't Marquette, that type of home court advantage, or even Xavier. It's not that, but it is a road game, so it is a little tricky at the same time, but they, they should be fine. So the Hoyas, they're a very front court heavy team. Jesse Govan, he's looking like a potential NBA draftee. His name was on the draft board since pretty much since he first came to Georgetown. And having a legendary big man as your coach has really done wonders for him. He's elevated his game completely. Ewing is using him in ways that I felt like JT3 hasn't hadn't been able to like tap into that potential. And seeing now that he's the star of this team, he's really able to shine. He's averaging a double-doubles, over 17 points per game, 11 rebounds. The man... Is doing pretty well on the floor. He's great on both ends. He shoots just over 50%, and he's not a liability from the free throw line, which you might see in a lot of big men out there. And he occasionally knocked down a three. He had the dagger against St. John's. Didn't know he had range in him. He doesn't flex it too much, but if his team needs him to, he'll knock it down from beyond the arc. Same goes for Marcus Derrickson, his partner in crime inside, another big man. He's younger, but he's already looking pretty good, averaging just under 15 points per game seven and a half boards. He's a little more of a stretch big. 
If he needs to, he can also rumble inside. Another tough front court tandem. But unlike St. John's, these guys are very well versed on the offensive end. They're not they're not going to slouch there. You're not going to be able to sleep on them there. They're going to give Omari Spellman and Eric Pascal and Demir Cosby Roundtree a pretty good test because the ball is going to come to them. It's going to go to their. It's going to go their way a lot. Expect a lot of touches for them. And looking out at the backcourt, it's pretty much a revolving door. Caleb Johnson, he's all right. He's averaging double digits, but honestly, it's Govan and Derrickson and everyone else to just kind of help supplement them. They do run a kind of deep rotation. They can go as deep as eight or nine guys if needed. But yeah, this is the Georgetown Hoyas of 2017-18. Govan, Derrickson, it's going to be a pretty good test for Spellman and for Pascal. So I'm going to be keeping an eye out for mainly on how they do against them defensively and offensively. Yeah, that's a great point. I, I really want to see how Eastman and, and Navari are able to handle these two guys up front. It is a good test. They are great players, not on a good team, but they are great players. So I, I'm intrigued to see how they do. Like you said, the backcourt's an absolute disaster for Georgetown. Hopefully Brunson and Dante and Booth and Bridges are all able to cook because of that and they are able to get back on track. So maybe maybe Dante puts two good games together. You never know. This could be. This is the type of game as well that Dante should step up and light up the scoreboard a little bit. Hopefully Brunson, he didn't have the best of games against St. John's, but hopefully with really no solid competition on the other end, Brunson's able to, to take over and, and do his thing and, and basically lead this team to victory. Tip-off is tomorrow night at 6.30 p.m. The game will be on Fox Sports 1. You can put the Fox Business Network back into the recesses of your mind. You'll probably never need that channel ever again, honestly. <laughs> Uh, that was just so weird. <laughs> very bizarre. Very bizarre. Very bizarre that that channel existed. And also very bizarre that Fox just kind of forgot that the NFL playoffs were happening. You know, that's a good point. But the Eagles-Falcons game was on NBC. And then the other game was on, was it, I forget what it was on. It wasn't on Fox, though. Yeah, they were on CBS. So, yeah, Fox didn't even have an NFL game going that night. So I, I, I still don't understand why they had to put us on the business network. But whatever yeah very bizarre shout out to the eagles my former employer for making it to the next round i know you can't stand them chris no and i know i'm a giants fan so i'm supposed to hate them but they have a soft spot in my heart that's good for you eugene because i'm still contemplating why you're calling a a rollout on fourth and goal with with one of the best quarterback wide receiver tandems in, in in the entire country what what oh oh my god and because of that touchdown, they couldn't go for the two points. And because they couldn't go for the two points, they couldn't cover the two-and-a-half spread, Eugene. Eugene, <laughs> what were they thinking? <laughs> All I got to say is whoever was calling the plays from last year's Super Bowl was probably the same guy calling the plays in that very crucial drive well, where the Falcons came out of the end. Well, Kyle Shanahan was calling the plays in the Super Bowl, and he went to San Francisco. So unless he was phoning in the plays from the 49ers <laughs> front office, I don't know. I don't know if it's just in the water there. But God, the Falcons are such chokers. And now we get, we're blessed with a Nick Foles, Case Keenum's NFC championship matchup. And then when the Jaguars go into New England and beat the Patriots, we will be blessed with a Blake Bortles and a Case Keenum (laughs) Super Bowl. Just wait. Quarterbacks mean nothing. I'm a fan of a team with one of the best quarterbacks of all time in Aaron Rodgers, and they're sitting at home at seven and nine. Granted, he was hurt, but. What, what what is the point of being a, having a good quarterback anymore? Just build a good defense. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I heard he's dating Danica Patrick now, and uh, I was one surprised that she's still around, still relevant, 
And two, Chris, fire you. I'd be very concerned for his performance next season. Oh yeah, no, I exactly know who I'm going to blame next year when the team goes to crap. It's it's perfect. I'm I'm actually kind of glad he has a new girlfriend because now I could blame someone else. I can't blame the team because they fired all the coaches and they fired the GM and all. Oh, they reassigned the GM, so I can't blame any of the personnel guys. So I'm just going to blame the girlfriend of the quarterback. Perfect, absolutely perfect. I'm so happy. Putting the football talk and the men's team aside, there were a couple of other games this past weekend that bookended the St. John's Thriller at the Garden. It was our own Villanova women's basketball team. They had two games, one against the Seton Hall Pirates and another against the St. John's Red Storm this past Sunday. They did split the series. They were able to come out with a dub against the Seton Hall Pirates, but unfortunately they couldn't match the same winning result that the men's team had, and they lost one to St. John's at Carnesake Arena. Chris, what were your thoughts on these two games? Really tough leg in this road trip that they've had four games in seven days two more games on the road with seton hall and st john's literally two days apart what did you take away from this weekend how do you think they did as i predicted last episode i said this team would split the road trip mainly because like you said they've been playing so much basketball in such a short amount of time they're just gonna have tired legs and when you're on the road for such an extended period of time you're going to eventually drop the game with the seton hall game Able to escape with a victory. Kelly Jaycott was the star. 5 of 13 from field, 3 of 7 from deep. And she was able to hit 8 of 9 free throws. As a team, Villanova went to the free throw line 20 times. That has to be a season high. And on top of that, they hit 19 of them, showing that they were able to put away a game. In a game that they were trailing early, they were down by 9 throughout the first half, pretty much. Beginning of the second half and the third quarter, they were able to cut into that lead by 5 points, cut it down to 4 going into the fourth and then they were able to erupt for 29 points in the fourth quarter while only giving up 17. Good enough to take the lead and eventually win the game. And you have to chalk it up to the great free throw shooting there. But then you go to Karnaseka. St. John's is pretty good. They're, they're a good team. But again, they were able to get to the free throw line, 14 to 17 from the free throw line. But the shooting just wasn't there. Six to seven from deep. You would expect more volume-wise. I, I would think they would, would have taken more threes and hit more threes as a result. And I think because of that, they just fell behind early and just weren't able to make up the deficit. They were playing catch-up pretty much the entire game. They lost every quarter on the scoreboard. And just they just weren't able to get a good groove going. St. John's was just able to lock down on defense. And on their on the offensive end for St. John's, we talked about the balance, very balanced attack that they had. Singleton had 16. Kevy had 16. England had 12. Adams had 10. It was a very balanced, distributed game for them. They played a phenomenal game, and they also shot well from deep. They went 6 of 11. While they didn't take many threes, they were able to hit their shots when they did take them. So kudos to them for beating a very tough Villanova team at home. Hopefully Villanova is able to recoup after this and and try to get back into the rankings now because this loss obviously prevented them from getting even consideration this week. So hopefully they're able to get back in. Yeah, it's just so tough to win three road games in a matter of six days, literally one day of rest in between each one. Pretty hard to prepare for it. Pretty hard to just be up consistently for that. The Seen Hall game was pretty good. It was a nice second half comeback to having a good performance from Kelly Jaycott and Mary Gadeka, two sophomores. They were so key to the win. They combined for 20 points in the fourth quarter to really help Villanova just put the game away, get ahead, put it to rest, and onwards to Karnaseka. Unfortunately, it didn't go as well. As you mentioned, while there's a lot of weapons for Villanova, there's also a lot of weapons on St. John's. They're just so evenly distributed, so balanced, so talented, and it was just catch-up the whole time. And it's really hard to just battle back 
twice, two nights in a row, two games in a row. And to be able to do that would have been very impressive. They fell short. Now they have a game against Penn tomorrow night. They're going to play the Quakers at 7 p.m. The game will be on Nova Nation All Access. And this will be an important game, Chris, because this is for the Big Five Championship. It'll be interesting to see how Villanova does after just running through the other three opponents. Now it's Villanova and Penn, and the winner will take the Philadelphia crown. What can we expect from this Penn Quakers team that will be coming to Jake Nevin Fieldhouse tomorrow night? Currently sitting at 8-5 and five overall, 2-1 and one within the conference. They have a little bit of a mini win streak going on here. They were able to defeat Cornell and Columbia their past two games. So maybe they're able to take this momentum into this Villanova game. And for Penn, it all starts with Aliyah Parker. Inside presence for them. She's averaging 12.2 points per game. And she has a 7.4 average on the boards. Very good player for them. And then Michelle Lucchetti. Another inside presence for Penn. She's averaging 10.8 points per game, and she's grabbing 8.2 boards per game as well. So there you go. You have two big presences inside. But as a result, this team isn't able to shoot threes all that well. They're shooting 34% from deep, which has you know a pretty big deal when it comes to Villanova when they want to play an up-tempo three-point shooting type game. And on the defensive end, they're allowing 50, only 58 points per game. That's a pretty stalwart defense if i ever seen one, at least scoring-wise anyway. I know their competition hasn't exactly been the best, but at the same time, it's something to look out for as Villanova loves to run a high-scoring offense. And on the offensive end, they're averaging about 66 points per game as well. So they have a nice little point differential, but at the same time, quality competition isn't up to snuff. But yeah, with this game being at Villanova, I just don't see them losing. Yeah, they had that one loss to the Butler at home. But I think they're just going to be able to correct it. I think the fact they're going to be home, they're going to be happy about that. They're going to love the fact that they're they're home. So I got them in a uh, victory here. And big five champs. Yeah, this is a Penn team that got smoked by Princeton a couple weeks back. And as we saw, that was a Princeton team that we just barely beat. This is a Penn team that won the Ivy League Championship last year, conference champions. They made it to the NCAA tournament. They're pretty good. They're pretty, they're pretty solid. But they remind me a lot like, Seton Hall in that, you know, two main players and then this is just kind of everyone else around them. Granted, pretty deep. They have a lot of players that they can run at you, go as high as nine or ten deep in a game. Uh, Parker, got to shut her down. We've seen big forwards just give Villanova a hard time in the past. We can't let that happen. And with Volchetti, her second highest scorer. She grabs the most boards on the team. She's a top shot blocker, great interior defender, but just a little inefficient for my liking. She's shooting 36.4%, and she does most of her work inside. Not really a good look, especially when you take the most shots on the whole team. So definitely keep an eye out for that. And then Lauren Whitlatch, she is their top three-point shooter, their only true perimeter threat, in my opinion. She's shooting 36% from beyond the arc. But aside from all that, also keep an eye out for Anna Ross. She is a pretty good point guard, great facilitator, and another solid perimeter defender. She has a, an assist-to-turnover ratio of just over 2.5, just around there. Look for her to just really get the ball to Parker and Wilketty. She's not going to score a lot, but hey, if you leave her open, she can get hers too. But overall, this Penn team, they don't impress me. I'm hoping that Villanova is tired, that they're not exhausted, that they're not feeling down or not feeling worn out from this giant road trip that they just finished. They have a couple days to get ready for this game tomorrow night. I think they just needed, like, sometimes just recharge those batteries and get back in it. I think they win tomorrow night, and we'll see them winning that Big Five championship. There's no trophy, but they get bragging rights. And in Philadelphia lore, that is more than enough, especially when you have that Big Five crown.
will be watching. The game, once again, is tomorrow night at 7 p.m. It'll be at the Jake Nevin Fieldhouse. It'll be on Nova Nation All Access. Big five crown on the line. That'll be certainly be one to watch for. Penn is pretty solid, but I don't think that they're going to beat Villanova at home. And Harry Pereira and his squad will be celebrating that Big Five title because it's been a while. So before we get to your questions, dive into the mailbag. I just want to bring up something that happened very recently. Big shout out and a big thank you to Kyle Lowry. The Toronto Raptors point guard and proud Villanova alum for donating $1 million to Villanova basketball. And as a result, he will get the locker room of the new pavilion named after him. So it'll be the Lowry locker room. Lowry locker room. Lowry Rocco. Wow, that's a tough wow. Yeah, that's Lowry Locker. <laughs> that really came as a bombshell too. No, it what, no rumors of any possible donation whatsoever. I mean, and honestly, Lowry went to the school for two years. Obviously, he was a big Jay's a big fan of his, and he was at the national championship and whatever, and he kept his ties. You never really seen a, a player make a donation, especially of a substantial size like that. But to see his meteoric rise from kind of a late first round, well, not really a bust, but a middling player with the Grizzlies and the Rockets and just hasn't been able to find a home, but then to find an adopted home in Toronto where him and DeMar DeRozan have been lighting up the North for the past couple of years. And yeah, they haven't been able to break through the LeBron and Kyrie wall that has been set up along the Eastern conference there. He has turned into a perennial all-star and as a result has been able to get some notoriety all around Canada and especially in the United States and to see him make contributions to a school that he didn't even spend four years at shows how much care he has for the school. So how much, how much he cares about the program, he just cares about Villanova in, in general, Jay, Brian, whatever it may be, whoever's associated with Villanova basketball. Good to see that he's repaying the school that, you know, kept him around and, and basically transformed him into the player that he needed to be. Cause you know, he, he kind of had some struggles early on, whatever it was, family and just the basketball like, but now to return the favor for Jake sticking with him and believing in him is it's a pretty cool thing to see. First thing, if you have not listened to the Kyle Lowry takes over the vertical podcast with Woj, I think it came out over the summer. If you have not listened to that podcast episode yet, so interesting. You get Kyle's pretty much his point of view of his time at Villanova from coming in the whole recruiting process, what he thought about his time there when he was injured with an ACL and it magically healed itself so quickly, his relationship with Jay. And it was basically him and Jay just like talking like two old pals, chilling in a studio. And Jay's given his insight and point of view of what he thought about Kyle. So you just get their first impressions of each other and ultimately how they became pretty tight and became pretty good friends and had respect for each other. Because we all knew Kyle Lowry, he had a little bit of an attitude coming in, but he really grew up. And here he is donating $1 million, the most given by a former Villanova basketball player. So, yeah, you mentioned how you haven't seen anything like it. It's because we never have seen anything like it. It has not happened before. This is the largest gift given by a former Wildcat. Once a Wildcat, always a Wildcat. And now our eyes are on you, Randy Foy, Dante Cunningham, and all you other people. Because Kyle Larry has set the bar high. They had a nice little ceremony. Yesterday morning for his whole donation and just kind of having a few words from him and Father Peter, Jay Wright, Mark Jackson was there. We will get the Lowry locker room at the pavilion. I can't wait to see it. It's probably going to look really fresh. Mm -hmm. And it's good to see a former Wildcat take care of his team. Yeah, it is. 
Is is this donation helping the like the expansion with the locker room? Like, is it going to make the locker room nicer? Or is he just buying name rights? Uh, I'm sure. I'm sure it's, it's both. I'm health. sure it's because because he's hooking it up. They're going to give him the locker room. Fair enough. Good. That's awesome. That's good to see. And I, I mean, I guess really, if you really think about it, he's really like the first player from this program to really like take off into like a new upper echelon type player that the NBA kind of loves to market. I mean, yeah, you had Kittles and he, he was a great player in his own right. Tim Thomas, Malik Allen, they were all pretty good players. Randy Foy was eh in the NBA. Dante Cunningham was making a living as a nice role player, but you never really seen a true star like Kyle Lowry. And because he, we were able to propel into this, I guess so, able to return the favor. And it's, it's a nice, cool sight to see. Yeah, I'd say probably, I guess, outside of Paul Arisen. You know, he, he had a ring in the NBA and had a great career, long one. Mm-hmm. But I guess outside of him, I, he might yeah. just be the most successful player since then in the NBA. Yeah, I'm talking, yeah, I, I'm just talking recent history. Yeah, that's. Yeah, recent, yeah, especially recent history. Like, I don't even think, was Kittles an all-star? I don't even think he was. He might have been once or twice with the J-Kid team. I don't know. I got, I'll, I'll look it up. But, yeah, he he wasn't like a superstar that the NBA would market. Like, he's, he's like all over, and especially in Canada, too. They, they absolutely love him. This just in for Kerry Kittles. He was not an NBA all-star, but his one NBA accolade was that he was an all-rookie second team. Yeah, all-rookie, 96. I know, you liked, I know you liked the Nets back then. You, you watched him. You saw him a few times. Yeah, I, I saw him play. He was an all-star in my mind, Eugene. Oh, of course, of course. <laughs> Just like TJ McConnell is an all-star in my mind. Okay, all right, next next topic. Oh, brother, this guy stinks! Oh, <laughs> We're moving on. We're moving on. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> We're talking about good things here, Eugene. Stop. Yeah, Kyle Lowry, three-time all-star. Hopefully he can get a ring with – hopefully in the next couple of years with LeBron destabilizing on the East. But, hey, you know, those Boston Celtics are looking pretty good. I do get hype for him and DeMar DeRozan and whenever the Raptors are in the playoffs or just playing a game. It's always good to see a former cat doing it big. Now we turn our attention to the mailbag. As always, you can tweet us at S-O-N-N-Pod. Send us your questions, anything you want us to talk about, and we'll discuss them on air. You can also leave us a message in the – podcast thread on view hoops in the comment section and it'll find its way to us we got a few questions the first one is from jerry quinn our guy he wants to know do we really think that colin will be coming back in the next few weeks if so how long until he provides quality minutes give brunson booth dante some relief well jerry there's actually some good news because it might not just be the next few weeks it might even be next week john rothstein tweeted out that Colin Gillespie could potentially be back next week. So that is way ahead of schedule. Way ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, where, where were we on the timeline for that hand injury? That, that that seems awfully quick. Which, you know, good, but shocking. He might have some of those Kyle Lowry genes where he just recovered from a torn ACL in like two months. Oh, Broken hand, you got it. Four weeks <laughs> or whatever it was. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, you got to think once he comes back, they'll, they'll throw him right into the fire again. Assuming he's not, I'm assuming he's not redshirting now and start playing immediately. Maybe give him a game or two to ease him back in. But I, I mean, at this point, why not just throw him in? You got to, you got to spell these guys somehow. They're, they're playing 35 plus minutes a night, so you, you kind of need him at this point. Yeah, I think they certainly work him back in. I just don't see why they'd redshirt him. I think Jay's thinking, man, we could use this guy for March. He's another player off the bench that can contribute some solid minutes. Yeah, he got hurt in early December. 
and then it was initially a month, but then it got upgraded to like an eight-week injury. So he's coming back ahead of schedule. I'd like to see him back. I mean, just looking ahead at the schedule, we got Providence and Marquette coming in. So if he wants to squeeze in on that, we play Providence at home at the Wells Fargo Center, and then obviously Marquette on the road. So I can see him potentially coming back, especially for that home game and Providence get his legs under him, get back to being a game speed. He was doing pretty well before going down, and hopefully he can just get back in shape, get back to the swing of things. Because, yeah, we can't have our guys just running 30, 30, 35 minutes every night. That's just a, that's a lot. That's a lot. It's a lot to ask for him. As we saw last year, kind of caught up with them toward the end. So you need every, every minute counts. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, right now, who's our only guard coming off the bench? Dante? Dante. Is he the only one? Am I not? Yeah, I'm not overlooking him. But, yeah, Dante. Yep. So yes. one guy to soak up all the backcourt minutes that we need from the second string. Yeah, not not a, not an ideal. I mean, granted, he looked good against St. John's, did a great job. But if we don't have to stress our top-tier guys every night, if we don't have to run them for pretty much 95% of the game, and we can give them a little rest here and there, I'm all for that. Agreed. Uh, next question is from Mike D. He wants to know, why did we go after Jordan Tucker? Well, Mike, let me tell you. We dodged a bullet. <laughs> why is that, Eugene? Well, okay. I guess the simple answer would be, we got Jermaine Samuels. After we got Jermaine Samuels, talks from both sides just completely cooled off. We didn't even hear from him. He didn't hear from us. We just kind of went our separate ways because, look, we got the wing we needed. Coming in, Jermaine Samuels and Jordan Tucker were pretty much similar. They played the same positions. They were similar types of players. We needed someone to replace Josh Hart on the wing, and that's exactly what Jermaine Samuels was brought in to do. We didn't need two freshman wings coming in. This is not Noah's arc. So we just really didn't need another carbon copy of what pretty much Samuels was going to be. And also, Jordan Tucker, I've covered him. I've seen him in New York. He's a White Plains guy. He's not too far away from me, literally 15 minutes away. Let's just say Jordan Tucker, it was a little, you could see it a little bit if you followed his recruitment pretty closely, but the guy's kind of a diva. I don't know if he learned his lesson at Duke. I don't know if... Being on that bench, sitting behind Marvin Bagley, Wendell Carter Jr., Gary Trent, all those guys that were also brought in with him, just kind of humbled him a little bit. I really hope so. But the guy is a me-first kind of guy. And when you're Villanova and you're all about family, you're all about team, doesn't really doesn't really line up. doesn't really line up between uh, Tucker and Jay Wright. And honestly, I would have not predicted. When I, when I heard he was going to Duke and he pretty much said, F you to every other school that worked hard to recruit him. And all of a sudden Duke comes in 11th hour, gives him an offer and he jumps right away on it. I was like, ah, yeah, I'm not, I don't know. I mean, it's like, you know, congratulations for going to Duke, but not really, not really about team, more about me. And I got a few high school stories for him of him playing high school basketball stories that if you want, I can tell you, but let's just say, I remember I, I was told this one story of how, there was an 8 a.m. practice. He came in at 10.30 late and got the star treatment we want. Wow. Yeah, no, that, that it wouldn't exactly fit into the, the whole Jay Wright mantra attitude team thing he's kind of built here. Yeah, I guess you're right that we kind of dodged the bullet. When you, when you were t- kind of telling me about him, a lot of red flags went up. 
it kind of reminded me of Dominique Cheek a little bit. <laughs> but at the same time, this was a guy that we, we were discussing this last week that, off air that we heard about a lot and we're like, oh, we might go after him, whatever it may be. But, you know, I believe it was Syracuse at the time that was really high on him. But then you kind of forgot about him. And honestly, I had no idea he was at Duke. So when you told me he was transferring, I was like, I was like, oh, that's great. Where is he transferring from? Like Indiana or whatever. And you're like, no, no, he's transferring from Duke. I'm like, when, when the hell did he choose Duke? Like that was, that was completely out of the blue, like out of the ordinary. Like, I wasn't expecting that. But like you said, Duke comes in last minute and you want to go play for the big boys at Duke, you know, fine. But learn your lesson that you're not going to be starting because he was what? I mean, he was a highly touted recruit, but he's not the top 10 in the country that, that Duke usually goes after. So, yeah, that was a pretty puzzling choice. But now he's going to, to Butler, I believe. He was between Georgetown and Butler. So, yeah, that's a good, it's a good get for Butler talent-wise, but I don't know how they'll handle it culturally. One of the big things for Jordan Tucker was playing time. So just looking at his two options of Butler and Georgetown, it was very clear that the playing time was available. By the time he's eligible, Keela Martin would have graduated, so he can step in right there. Keela Martin played, and obviously Georgetown, they can use anyone in their backcourt or on the wings. With Jordan Tucker, yeah, he's talented. Four-star guy coming out of high school, played in the Jordan Classic regional game, along with Colin, Demir, and Jermaine. So, we, you know, he's pretty talented. He's got skill. He can shoot from anywhere. He can really take off, but just just mental standpoint, attitude standpoint, not quite sure that he will fit in for Villanova. I'm sure Jay kind of picked up on that. I, I would assume he did because there's a reason why they went cold and they ultimately went with Jermaine. And once Jermaine signed, it was like, okay, we don't need any more wings or players of that type. But it just seemed like every week it was like a new team was in for Jordan Tucker. Syracuse had recruited him since he was in eighth grade, caught in the race. And then all of a sudden his school is just changed. It was like Georgia Tech, Syracuse, and Oregon. And then, like, the week after, it was like, oh, well, these teams aren't in the picture anymore, but now Duke is. And it was just, like, flip-flop, flip-flop until ultimately he got that Duke offer. And then it was like, oh, well, that's the biggest school on my list. Finally get to play with them. And then he just jumped along. And obviously, yeah, when you're <laughs> – you have guys like Marvin Bagley and all those top ten recruits, you're going to sit on the bench. And hopefully that humbled him. Hopefully he learned his lesson because he's just not going to – he's not going to get what he wants right away. He's going to have to sit out. He's going to be eligible midway through next season. He's going to be on Butler, so that's going to be fun for Villanova to deal with. But, yeah, just from mental standpoint, attitude standpoint, I don't think he quite fits in. The man transferred three times in high school. It was the Jordan Tucker show. It was not the whatever team he was on show. It was all about Jordan Tucker. Not sure if that's the guy we want. He transferred high school three times. And that wasn't. I'm assuming it's not just for better program purposes. I bet you it was probably because of playing nine purposes <laughs> oh yeah so he's so ninth grade he started on the public high school for white plains high shout out to kim adams proud tiger alum and he had this game where he like lit up like it was like a tournament it was some tournament game and he just dropped 30 something it was like oh my god who is this freshman that just did this and then a private school you could be the star this is it was a big time private school in the area archbishop Stepanak. that he transfers there Plays his sophomore and junior year. Creates a complete divide within the city of White Plains. And Stepanak is also in White Plains. Then his senior year, he's like, well, see you guys. I'm going to Georgia. And I'm going to play for this school called Wheeler. And that's what happened with Jordan Tucker. Three high schools, four years. And now two colleges in six months. 
crazy. <laughs> Absolutely crazy. The last question is from Dan. Nice. 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 Apologies if I didn't get that right. But he wants to know, and if it takes a chicken and a half a day and a half a lay an egg, and a half a how long will it take a beaver with a wooden leg to eat a bag of peanuts? <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, we do say ask us anything. Well, we do. We do. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, I wish I was able to make out that question uh, into English. Um, it doesn't seem like it would be. But sure beaver yeah eggs makes makes perfect sense don't don't let the rest of the question fool you the question is how long will it take a beaver with a wooden leg to eat a bag of peanuts (laughs) (laughs) i want to know if uh dan was engaging in some herbal But but the the real question here is, do you ever have to crack the shells, or are these already like with the shell off? <laughs> I think they could, since they're a beaver, I think they could just eat the shell. Or do you think they not care? Or do you think they do care? Yeah, you know what? You're right. They're yeah. yeah, yeah. As an animal, it probably eats whatever it wants. I don't know if they care. It's a great question. Now now if they're salted, you might have to go get a drink. So it might be a little. It might take a while. By the water. They're they're beavers. That's true. They live in dams. Could too much sodium kill them? Like, would too much sodium be bad for them? Like, I I feel like I don't know. I don't know, man. That's that that would be a. I would say an interesting science experiment, but I don't want to kill any beavers while we're at it. I'm going with four days. I think it'll take four days to finish a complete bag of peanuts. Four days, really? Yeah, their stomachs aren't. Their stomachs aren't like ginormous, so I feel like you know, just work on it. Just munch on it slowly. But the, what, what do you think the wooden leg has to do with it? You think the wooden leg is actually helpful because then it might help him mash up the peanuts? Well, he has the tail for that. Well, why not use the wooden leg at that point? Because he's not used to using the wooden leg. Okay, that's fair. This is his old <laughs> one. Okay. I'm going to go a little less. I'm going to say a day. I think that's a whole day adventure. And I, I think he, he becomes a very happy beaver at the end of the day. And there you have it. One day from Chris Danziel. I think I said four. Yeah, four days to eat a bag of peanuts. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening to the State of the Nova Nation podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already. You can do so on Podomatic, on Apple iTunes, on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow View Hoops on social media at View Hoops. That's good for Twitter and Instagram. Also, please check back at viewhoops.com regularly. We got the news, we got the updates, we got the scoops, and we'll keep you posted on everything. All things, Villanova sports, Villanova basketball, men's and women's. And also, make sure you participate in our Pick'em contest. I know there were a couple games yesterday, but hey, maybe you can squeeze in your picks if you're a little late on that for this week. We got a real tight race at the top. Shout out to Ryan Bowman and Suckin NC for overtaking TP Stone for the lead, sitting on top. And there's a real tight race for first, second, and third. I'm doing okay. I think last time I checked, I was in third place with like four or five other people. I had that horrible first week or first couple of weeks, and I just haven't been able to recover. I'm just kind of just going for a little ridiculous picks now just to hope to make up some ground. 
can follow me, Eugene Repay, at Repay 5 And you can follow me, Chris Stanziel, at The Stansman on Twitter. Novination, happy Tuesday. Those of you who had off yesterday, welcome back to work. Whatever you do, help you get through this first day back. Just remember, Villanova is number one.